I want to begin today with a question. Are you more likely to give to others if you think you might get something back in return? Think about that for a moment. I've been reflecting on that this past week, and I came to the conclusion that in some ways, that's really not true of me. With some things, like tithing, I've been doing it for so long, it's a habit. I do it without thinking about it and without thinking about what I'll get in return. But in other ways, I'm sorry to say, that really is true of me. Particularly with time, I can operate on a scarcity mentality at times. So when someone wants a ride to a kid's game or a birthday party or needs help watching children, I'm more likely to do it if I think they will return the favor sometime. I'm hoping I'm not alone on this. I think many of us are often doing things for other people as a way of putting a credit on our account. So the next time we're in need, we can cash in that favor and have the need met. I'm not against this behavior. Indeed, that's what's behind the phrase, it takes a village. It's practical. It makes sense. Most societies function on this unspoken social norm of mutual reciprocity. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Everyone wins when individuals cooperate. I, for one, am going to keep my kids' carpool to sports games and practices. But as someone on the journey of following Jesus... I'm challenged by the words I encounter in our passage today that turn the tables on this. If you've been with us for the last month, you'll know we've been using the table as a metaphor for Christian hospitality. Because while it includes inviting people into our homes and to our dinner tables, it's much broader than that. This isn't just what some people do because they're outgoing or have a spiritual gift for it. This is what followers of Jesus do. Because ultimately, hospitality is simply giving concrete expression to the love God has for others. And it does so in a way that meets both physical needs as well as emotional and spiritual. Practicing hospitality is a way of life. It's an overall posture towards relationships and towards life in general. It's friendliness, warmth, reception, welcome, helpfulness, neighborliness, kindness, and generosity, all extended not only to those in our natural social circles, but as we've seen over the course of this series, also to the stranger, to the vulnerable, the needy, even the enemy. As we conclude this series, I think Jesus' words about generosity are fitting. They're found in Luke 14, verses 12 to 14, page 1590 in your pew Bible. And I want to first take a look at what Jesus says in this passage and what it might mean for us today. Then we're going to conclude this message and our series by looking at how we can overcome the barriers we face when seeking to practice hospitality. Because ultimately, that's the goal of this series, to practice hospitality more regularly. So, let's begin with the passage in Luke 14, 12 to 14. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. 
But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let me start by saying we misinterpret this text if we take it literally and think we should never invite friends or family to our homes. Look at Jesus' life. He was regularly having dinner parties with his friends. This is one of the things I love about him. It was very relational. His first miracle of turning water into wine takes place when he's at a feast with family member and friends. On numerous occasions, such as Luke 10, John 12, he's in the home of good friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and we have many other instances of this. So rest assured, Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to spend time with friends. The point he's making is that we should be willing to give without getting anything in return. Three times in these verses, he repeats the verb repay. Verse 12, don't invite these people, your friends, brothers, sisters, relatives, rich neighbors. If you invite them, they'll invite you back and you'll be repaid. Instead, verse 13, invite these people, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Why? Verse 14, because although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is adding a different social norm to the mix. Instead of quid pro quo or mutual reciprocity where we only give if someone will be able to give back to us one day, Jesus is calling for a generosity that is not looking for the kickback. A generosity without any ulterior motives. The four groups of people Jesus lists are at the very bottom of their social class. Luke 14, 1 tells us Jesus says these words in the home of a prominent Pharisee. The poor, crippled, lame, and blind are not one level below this guy. They are people who will never be able to return the favor. That's true generosity, Jesus says. When you give knowing you will not receive anything back from those you give to. This is similar to what Luke records earlier from Jesus' teaching in Luke 6, 32 to 35. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those to whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without, expect, without expecting to get anything back. Point being... There's nothing unusual about being kind or giving to those who do the same with you. What is unusual, what will stand out, is when you give to someone who can't repay you. That shows you're not in it for what you'll get. You're in it for the good of that person. Verse 14 tells us there are rewards. They may just not be on this earth. And actually, we often do receive a reward even on this earth but we don't do it in order to get the reward. Jesus' words are all the more challenging when we remember the social context of the first century. The meal table defined the boundaries of one's community. It delineated who was in. 
You only ate with people who would maintain or advance your status. This is one reason Jesus made people mad by who he ate with. He shared meals with both the respectable and the disreputable, the influential and the marginalized. Nobody did that. I think it's easy for us to miss just how offensive Jesus' words were to those first listening. He is not merely saying, give to others without expecting a reward, although that's part of it. He is also criticizing their tendency to exclude others based on social class, to practice hospitality in ways that only perpetuate the social boundaries of our culture. One commentator writes, the Pharisees are thus portrayed as persons who exploit hospitality for self-serving agenda and whose patterns of hospitality both secure their own positions of dominance in their communities and insulate them from the needy. Ouch, that's convicting. Am I practicing hospitality in a way that perpetuates delineations of our social class? Or am I willing to give freely to those who cannot repay me? I confess as I've asked myself that question this week, I am convicted by Jesus' words. Jesus tells his dinner guests in verse 14, they can only give generously because they will receive a reward from God. They can give out of the abundance of what they have received. Andy unintentionally helped me this week with a word picture for this from Luke 6, 38, which follow the verses I read earlier. Jesus is talking here about having a generosity of spirit towards others. And here's the image he uses. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. Okay, for all you popcorn fans, a generous popcorn vendor will shake that popcorn down into the cup so as to make room to add more. Or if you're more of a sweet person, picture a bucket of Martha's cookies from the state fair. They shake that tray of freshly baked cookies and pile it on top. So it's heaping. You have to eat them up fast, which is not hard to do, or they're going to pour over onto your lap, yes? This is the love God has for us. He pours it over us so we can't help but spill it over onto others. We have been loved lavishly, so we live generously. Some of you may recognize this is one of our four values at City Church, to serve sacrificially. This is what we're seeking to do. And that includes number one, doing ordinary things with great love, striving to meet the spiritual, physical, and emotional needs of those God leads us to serve. And number two, living generously. As God is generous with us, so too can we be generous in the way we live, giving our time, skills, and money. This is the heart of Christian hospitality. Giving generously to others in the various spheres of influence we have, homes, schools, neighborhoods, workplaces. Can you imagine what might be the impact on our world if each one of us took this seriously? Many of you are already doing this in beautiful ways, but given our narcissistic society, it's worth reiterating. Now that's the passage for today. I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at five obstacles we need to overcome 
If indeed we want to live out this generous, open-handed invitation towards others. This list isn't comprehensive, but if we're going to actually set the table and extend the invitation more, at a minimum, we're going to need to overcome these barriers. And again, I want you to think in terms of the various settings, those various concentric circles we can practice hospitality in, homes, neighborhoods, school, church, workplace, hobby groups, city, country. The first barrier to practicing hospitality is, I don't have a nice home or meal prepared or whatever. This is a common obstacle for many of us, given our Western paradigm of hospitality. We're caught in the entertainment trap. One writer explained, when hospitality is viewed as entertainment, the house is never ready. My mother-in-law, who herself is very hospitable, sent me this excerpt months ago from Bible teacher Jen Wilkin on the difference between entertaining and hospitality. I found it helpful. Wilkin explains, Entertaining involves setting the perfect tablescape after an exhaustive search on Pinterest. It chooses a menu that will impress and then frets its way through each stage of preparation. It requires every throw pillow to be in place, every cobweb to be eradicated, every child to be neat and orderly. It plans extra time to don the perfect outfit before the first guest touches the doorbell on the seasonally decorated doorstep. Entertaining focuses attention on self. Hospitality involves setting a table that makes everyone feel comfortable. It chooses a menu that allows face time with guests instead of being chained to the cooktop. It picks up the house to make things pleasant, but doesn't feel the need to conceal evidences of everyday life. It sometimes sits down to dinner with flour in its hair. It allows the gathering to be shaped by the quality of conversation rather than the cuisines. Hospitality shows interest in the thoughts, feelings, pursuits, and preferences of its guests. It's good at asking questions and listening intently to others. Hospitality focuses attention on others. Entertaining is always thinking about the next course. Hospitality burns the rolls because it was listening to a good story. Entertaining seeks to impress. Hospitality seeks to bless. Entertaining invites those whom it will enjoy. Hospitality takes all comers. See, true hospitality doesn't require many resources. It just requires a willingness to share our resources, whether that's food, time, space, or money. As the Danish proverb states, if there is room in the heart, there is room in the house. A second common obstacle to practicing hospitality is I don't have time. (laughs) This is tricky because it's possible we don't have enough time because we've set the bar too high, as I just mentioned. I may not have time to make a four-course meal, but I do have time to say, hey, we're ordering pizza tonight. Want to come over? However, it's also possible that even if we're keeping the bar low, we really don't have time. This is especially true for those of us who more naturally see others' needs or who are already caring significantly for others. If Christian hospitality is always pressing communities outward to make the circle of care larger, as I tried to make the case last week, this is an ever-expanding table. Eventually, even when we use rice as filler, we will run out of food. We really do have only so much energy. How are we to navigate this tension 
that we're to be both outward and, and inclusive, and yet we're also finite and limited. Edith Schaefer, who founded Libri Fellowship with her husband, helps me here. Libri Fellowships are intentional Christian communities over 60 years old in numerous countries around the world, including our own Rochester, Minnesota, here. They exist so that people can find, quote, satisfying answers about faith and a practical demonstration of Christian care. It's beautiful. On the tension of caring for a young family as well as outsiders, Edith wrote, because there are more people than we have time or strength to see personally and care for, it is imperative to remember it is not sinful to be finite and limited. Oh, bless you, Edith. Thank you. She goes on to describe how our doors have hinges that swing wide open to others as well as locks that prohibit others from coming in, allowing time for refreshment. And I think it's wise for each one of us to examine our own tendencies on this. Do we tend to focus more on the hinges or on the lock and ask God to help us in balancing that? I believe he will answer when we genuinely ask, how can I practice hospitality within the confines of my limitations? That's a beautiful prayer. A third common obstacle to practicing hospitality can be, I don't want to compromise my own standards or beliefs. If I open my doors to people who don't share my beliefs, does that mean I'm condoning their behavior? Of course it's true that we who that who we associate with can influence us, particularly if we're young or susceptible. I think of the students or young adults among us, many of whom are constantly exposed to harmful influences. They need strong Christian friends who model an alternative way of life. That's one reason we have velocity in small groups. But those of us mature in the faith need not feel constrained by the mentality of guilt by association. Jesus often kept company with questionable characters, but he never let it compromise his character. One writer described that tension this way. Jesus dined with sinners. He didn't sin with sinners. He lived in the world, but he didn't live like the world. Christians are to be both set apart and missionally placed in the world. How can we be an influence for good if we have no relationship with anyone outside our faith. This is a tension again, to be sure, but perhaps we can all think about whether we might fit in the dining with or sinning with continuum and seek to look more like Jesus. A fourth obstacle is, I don't wanna be rejected. <laughs> Regardless of what the invitation is, it's always a risk to extend an invitation. We just might be rejected or worse, Maybe they'll think we're losers with no friends and feel sorry for us. Like a teenage boy asking a girl out for the first time. Whenever we extend an invitation, we feel awkward, uncomfortable, bumbling our way through it. I just want to name this because each one of us feels this way, even the extroverted and outgoing among us. We all wrestle with insecurities when it comes to extending invitations. Hospitality always involves risk and the possibility of failure. But we can choose to value the inclusion of others over our own feelings. After all, it's about them, not us, right? A recent podcast and article in Christianity Today described this beautifully. 
written by Cambridge PhD, Rebecca McLaughlin. It's entitled, Why I Don't Sit With My Husband at Church. Of course, this can apply to other settings besides church, but McLaughlin talked about how she and her husband rarely sit together at church so they can intentionally engage with others who are there. She said, either this person I'm sitting next to is my brother or sister in Christ and therefore my family, or is someone who needs to hear who God is and perhaps I can be a part of that. She admitted it's a bit awkward to sit with someone who is sitting alone, but she said as long as you're not overbearing, most people are glad for the company and don't actually want to sit alone. It just requires you caring more about them feeling included than you focusing on your own insecurities. I thought that was helpful. What if we all cared more about others being included here at church, but in other places too, rather than ourselves not feeling uncomfortable or awkward? What impact might that have on others? A fifth and final obstacle could be, I feel inadequate, I don't have it all together. When you extend an invitation of any kind, you're putting yourself out there. Our faults, as well as our possessions, are open to scrutiny. Laying bare our own lives has a way of surfacing our weaknesses. If you come to my house, you will see I haven't hung up one picture yet, even though we moved in a year ago. I'm not a great decorator. You may also catch me responding impatiently to my husband or children, and frankly, I'd rather you think I'm an endless supply of patience and goodwill. True hospitality requires humility. It requires an honest admission of our inadequacies, but it also requires an awareness of God's sufficiency. See, we don't have to do it all. We practice hospitality with God. He is the unseen host at our tables. He is who we are connecting people to, not us. We simply take the hand of the stranger and put it in the hand of God and watch watch him do the rest. After all, he is why we do this anyway. We're merely imitating him. It's his nature to extend welcome, to be open to all, to be generous. He extended his welcome and gave us a place at the table and into his family forever. How can we not share that with a watching, hungry world? And when we do, we witness and testify to who our God is. Every time we practice hospitality, we preach the gospel without words. It's been said that the front door of the home is the side door of the church. No one knows this better than Rosario Butterfield, former professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University, who for two years ate dinner with Christians, even though at the time she was writing a book on how deplorable and hypocritical Christians were. She tells her story in her newly released book. This is a great title. The gospel comes with a house key, practicing radical, ordinary hospitality in our post-Christian world. She says, over time, the steady, unfailing love and acceptance of those people wooed her into following Jesus. And in her book, she calls for the church to do the same. She says, the world is tired of hearing from Christians, but who could argue with mercy-driven hospitality? If we live lives of generous welcome, people may not understand or even agree with us, but they will respect us 
Christian hospitality is street credibility in our post-Christian world. But it doesn't happen in one instant. It's not just the annual party we host. It's the daily acts of laying down our lives in small pieces, small acts of sacrificial love and service that we offer to the stranger, the vulnerable, the one on the periphery, even the one outside our social class. We do it at great cost and risk, but we can't help it. We've come to know the lavish generosity of our God and can't help but share it. For as one scholar said, wherever, whenever, however the kingdom of God manifests itself, it is welcome. May we be a people who extend the invitation and include others without any regard for how we will be repaid. May we be known for our generosity of time, of resources, of spirit, reflecting our generous giving God who wants to welcome all to his table and into his home forever. City Church, whatever circles you move in, God has designs for your table. Won't you join him in extending the invitation?